The time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, we take a look at MMSD's contract with their new bus company after a tumultuous start to the school year. We report from Centro Hispano's evening of dreaming last weekend. A local advocate talks the impacts of a potential rate increase. And we go back in time to revisit the headlines from 1965 and, of course, a very complete weather forecast in the second half of the show. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Tomorrow, the state Senate is expected to fire Wisconsin's top elections official, Megan Wolf. That's after a Senate committee on elections voted on Monday to recommend firing Wolf, the administrator of the nonpartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. Wolf has been a frequent conservative target for years, largely a product of the agency's guidance in the 2020 presidential election. In June, commissioners of the WEC deadlocked on whether Wolf should be reappointed. Even though the Senate is slated to hold the vote and Dane County GOP officials have been reportedly ordered to clear their calendars to attend tomorrow morning, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Senate doesn't have the power to fire Wolf. That's according to the legislature's own nonpartisan council, who have advised that the Senate lacks the authority to fire her without a mandate from the Elections Commission. And a recent Supreme Court ruling that was used to uphold past conservative control of other policy boards could work in Wolf's favor this time, giving her the ability to stay appointed indefinitely. Meanwhile, Republicans in the state assembly are scheduled to vote tomorrow on a proposal for a nonpartisan redistricting process. Republicans have long opposed Democrats' proposals for nonpartisan redistricting, but the prospect of Democratic lawsuits before a state Supreme Court, now with a liberal majority, could mean that there is now traction for a bipartisan path forward to throwing out the state's current maps. This comes as Assembly Leader Robin Voss continues to threaten an impeachment process against Justice Janet Protasiewicz, the state's newest Supreme Court justice over her repeated statements during the spring campaign that the state's current voting maps are rigged. Recently, Protosewitz released a letter showing that the state's Judicial Commission rejected complaints that she had violated any judicial code of ethics. Speaker Voss announced today he would appoint a panel of retired Supreme Court justices to decide the impeachment question. According to numerous studies, Wisconsin's current voting district maps have the highest efficiency gap, as it's called, in the country, meaning Republicans overperform in elections. While the state is nearly evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, Republicans control two-thirds of the seat in the Senate and nearly two-thirds in the state assembly. And in a separate layer of complexity for the new state Supreme Court, Protasewicz has recused herself from a lawsuit that seeks to block lawmakers from starting impeachment proceedings against her. The suit names the Wisconsin State Assembly and Assembly Leader Robin Voss. It alleges that the threatened impeachment of justices violates the Wisconsin Constitution and restricts judicial independence, separation of powers, and the rights of voters. 
Well, if you follow the weather like I do, you might have noticed that or noted that there were water spouts over Lake Michigan today, and some warnings were issued for them, both by the National Weather Service and other bodies as well. The National Weather Service is warning boaters and other lake goers to keep a wide berth from any water spouts, the motion of which can be hard to predict, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. So experts suggest you should, uh, ha- should you spot one, you should head away from it at a 90-degree angle. Water spouts are uncommon in Wisconsin, but they do occur most often in the autumn when, like today, water bodies remain warm while the air above them cools. Wisconsin residents had nearly a 25% increase in falls at home that cause injury, according to state health officials. This big big increase over a three-year period is especially concerning because Wisconsin already has more than double the national average of fatal falls in adults over 65, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Experts believe that the high rate in Wisconsin is related to to greater use of alcohol, which is especially dangerous when mixed with other drugs. Other individual factors are loss of balance, fatigue, poor vision, and icy winters. Two years before the police arrested a Madison pastor for sexual assault of a minor, someone else witnessed the pastor engaging in improper behavior at Devil's Lake State Park and reported him to the Department of Natural Resources warden. That's according to Channel 3000. The DNR reportedly handed the case over to the Middleton Police Department, who interviewed the suspect, then a pastor at the Midvale Baptist Church and manager of a daycare center. The police department did not contact the witnesses to the incident at Devil's Lake, nor did the department file a report with the DNR. The case was essentially closed until a parent with a child at the child care center charged the minister. Now, two years later, the pastor resigned his position at the church, and the Department of Children and Families has revoked the license of the child care center. The principal of La Follette High School was attacked and injured by a student last Friday, reports NBC15. An 18-year-old student reportedly hit the principal in the head, pushing him against a locker and threatening to kill him. According to the complaint, the precipitating factor was the student hearing his name called repeatedly over the school loudspeaker. The principal was taken to UW Urgent Care and was diagnosed with a concussion. The student has been charged with substantial battery and disorderly conduct. A spokesperson for the school district tells Channel 27 that they are investigating but currently unable to comment further. And Sister Cindy, a TikTok famous evangelical street preacher, will visit Madison next Tuesday as part of her Ho No Mo campaign, reports the Daily Cardinal. Sister Cindy, as she is known to her social media followers, uses a loud and provocative style characterized by anti-gay rhymes and threats of eternal damnation. The Daily Cardinal reports that the sister, who has more than 420,000 followers, will visit several Wisconsin college campuses. Get ready, Wisconsin, she said via TikTok, strongly emphasizing the sin in the state's name. And those are today's top stories. Now on to the rest of the day's news. MMSD's busing issues have been in the headlines all month. Everything from driver shortages to delays that left students without transportation for hours. 
WORT got a hold of the papers, signed in May, outlining a five-year contract between the district and First Student Incorporated, a national bus service company. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Last May, the Madison Metropolitan School District signed a contract with a new school bus company in an effort to save money and address the bus driver shortage. WORT reporter Zoe Sullivan obtained the contract through an open records request. First student's bid was the lowest of three possible contractors at $81 million. The district's previous contractor, Badger Bus, pitched almost $82 million. Last spring, Cedric Hodo, MMSD's Executive Director of Building Services and Operations, told the CAP Times that they believe First Student is best equipped to handle the district's shifting transportation schedule. Madison Middle Schools, after years of talks, now start later in the day, and that requires a two-tier schedule. At the time, Hodo said that First Student was the most likely candidate to have enough drivers, in spite of an ongoing nationwide shortage. WRT has reported on bus driver shortages in the past. Two years ago, MMSD and former contractor Badger Bus posted on social media to look for 30 new bus drivers, just a month before school started. Middle school start times were an issue back then, too. The former public information officer at MMSD said, So they've been working on this sort of complex puzzle of, like, how can we consolidate routes while staying um, within bus capacity limits? So that's something that they're working on. And then we might have to plan around possible delays in arrivals or departures. We don't love that idea. We really, we really want our families to be prepared and to have consistency and kind of know what they're going into in the fall. But the reality is we might have to do some delays. 2021's fall schedule was rife with transportation issues, like the ones we're seeing now. With first student as the new contractor, the day after Labor Day saw serious delays. Students waited as long as two hours to be picked up. Last Wednesday, teachers at Lakeview Elementary walked dozens of students home. The day before that, they escorted an even larger group of students. Also last week, the principal at Senate Middle School drove his student's bus route himself to cover the driver shortage. And Memorial High School's athletic director drove a busload of Leopold Elementary students. The district's spokesperson, Ian Folger, told the State Journal that transportation ran smoothly that day, aside from some, quote, notable exceptions, unquote. Folger declined a phone interview this afternoon and instead referred me to First Student. First Student also declined a phone interview, but they did send a written statement in which the company claims that nearly all transportation routes this week are running on time or with minimal delays. But they say accommodating the district system of two-tiering, where buses travel two different routes based on start times, has been a challenge, requiring additional routes outside the normal schedule. First student goes on to add that they hope to get more than a dozen candidates in training to bus routes in the coming weeks and increase starting wages this semester to $24 an hour with a $3,000 sign-on bonus to be finalized. Part of their five-year contract stipulates that, when faced with a driver shortage, first student is able to pass through the cost of previously negotiated incremental labor costs and expenses. MMSD did not return a request over whether that is currently the case. The contract also says that first student has a grace period of 30 days after any schedules are readjusted. This also applies to the startup period, or first 60 days of this school year, starting the first day of school. So the bus company will not be charged for any of this month's issues. Outside of these exceptions, if first student fails to stick to the schedule in the future, they could be charged up to $500 per infraction. Last month, Governor Tony Evers signed a bill in order to address bus driver shortages statewide. 
The law makes it possible for school board members to volunteer as bus drivers, as long as they hold a valid driver's license. This was mostly in response to demands from New Glarus, where a bus driver was told he could no longer drive routes following his election to the school board. WPR reports that, as of two weeks ago, up to 15 to 20 percent of driver jobs remained unfilled, according to the Wisconsin School Bus Association. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The time is now 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The dreams of Centro Hispano are planting a new seed. Last Saturday, September 9th, children, parents, and friends gathered at the current headquarters on West Badger Road to celebrate a bilingual evening of music, yoga, wellness, and dreaming. Excitement is rising about the organization's new facility at the corner of Cypress Way and Hughes Place, soon to be opened in the spring of 2024. We sent our reporter Diego Alegria to this evening of dreaming. He asked the executive director of Centro Hispano, activity leaders, and the participants about this annual event. Last Saturday, September 9th, Centro Hispano celebrated an evening of dreaming, or Noche de Ensueño, at the current Centro Hispano headquarters on West Badger Road. Each year, this event circles around a different theme, from agriculture and immigration to music, food, and art. The topic of this year was the relationship between dreaming and wellness. Karen Menendez-Koller, the executive director of Centro Hispano, described the celebration as a day to slow down so that participants could imagine, develop, and plant their dreams as new seeds for Madison South Park neighborhood. Pues es un día de como slow it down, you know? Y enfocarnos en los sueños que cada una de esas personas tienen en nuestros corazones, desarrollar esos sueños para que queden como semillas acá en este vecindario. Centro Hispano invited Tia Lia's Neighborhood and People's Yoga all the way from Los Angeles, California, to stage this musical, introspective, and communal experience. For the musician Tia Lia, their aim was to curate events or curate spaces that focus on music and expression, storytelling, but then also well-being and wellness, mental, mental wellness, emotional wellness and physical wellness. The activities were blended together in order to cultivate a holistic event and space. Let's hear about those activities from Laura Juan Madrid, co-founder of People's Yoga. Well, we started with music and then we went on to a little yoga asana and then we went into a little fitness. So we got sweaty, we started to sweat and we started to move and build strength. And then we did a lot of journaling, a lot of storytelling. Well, not storytelling, I'm sorry. Journaling, but thinking about for ourselves what our dreams are and how we want to move those forward. And we shared them with each other. So it's beautiful. These activities gathered children, parents, and friends who joyfully shared their impressions about the event and the role of Centro Hispano for the different 
generations. Karen, a participant, described this evening as a learning experience, especially for her niece. It taught her to voice and share her identity in a safe, welcoming and comfortable space. My favorite part was definitely sharing our dreams and just seeing my niece who's nine and teaching her how to be vocal and how to uh, create a space for herself and her knowing that we have spaces like this. Other participants, like Jerry, enjoyed the physical activity fostered by this event. Yolanda even shared her dream to WORT, a dream that emulates the communal spirit of Centro Hispano. Accessibility was also a topic raised and praised by many participants. Grisel reflected on how this event offered an opportunity for those who cannot afford a yoga class or for those who would like to learn this practice in Spanish. Creo que tener esta actividad, lo cual no se ve mucho en nuestra comunidad, es algo muy bueno porque hay um, personas como yo que no tienen a lo mejor el, la parte financiera para poder tener una clase de estas y tener este esta oportunidad de hacerlo bilingüe también en un espacio como centro que es muy bienvenido a la comunidad, se siente muy bonito. Juan Madrid, from People's Yoga, gave her instructions in Spanish, whereas Tia Lía required a bilingual interpreter. Let's hear how Tia Lía praised the work of Tania, a translator. Tania reflected on the role of listening, a motif that also permeated this event. Having translation, especially Tania, because was so like focused and centered and grounded and like a professional was amazing. Like, she didn't just translate the words. Danya also translated the feeling. Being able to capture, um, you know, the words, the feelings of the person speaking uh, is very meaningful because you have to be very present and listening to them and practicing yourself. This awareness of the force of language traversed not only impressions around translation, but also the very role of Spanish in Centro Hispano, an organization that sees upwards of 6,000 individuals a year, receives an average of 2,000 calls a month, and offers more than 10,000 hours of programming annually. Giancarlo, a college student from Ecuador, meditated on how the presence of Spanish across the Americas cultivates a sense of belonging and a space for cultural exchange. Me agrada la idea de que exista lugares como el Centro Hispano donde la gente latina puede venir a, a saber de su cultura. Ya saben que el, el español se maneja en todo Sudamérica, Centroamérica, entonces son, son muchas culturas y se habla un idioma. Me parece muy, muy integrador. The event came as Centro Hispano is seeing some dreams become reality. The nonprofit, which is celebrating their 40th anniversary this year, is planning to move soon to a brand new headquarters just around the corner of Cypress Way and Hughes Place.
that comes after a 20 million capital campaign, along with a 4.8 million grant from the state and a land swap with the city of Madison to purchase the larger, more accessible plot of land. Construction got underway in February, and they expect to open their new headquarters next spring. Executive Director Menendez Coller reflected on the evening as an opportunity to transplant their past experiences and current dreams into the new facility. Entonces queremos llevar una energía positiva de sueños y viendo el futuro de una manera diferente al nuevo edificio. Entonces esa es la relación, dejar todo lo pesado acá y cómo podemos como desahogarnos y llevar esos sueños para el otro lugar. Juan Madrid from People's Yoga is looking forward to return to Madison and to witness the new facility. I'm so happy for Centro and for what they're going to do when they get into their new spot, which is being built right now. So I can't wait to come back and be, see that. There is a lot of excitement in the air. After this evening, attendees say they feel even more encouraged to participate in all the activities that Centro Hispano has prepared for them. Yolanda would definitely like to come back with her family. Pues nada más que me gustaría seguir viniendo, seguir apoyando, me gustaría involucrarme en las actividades del Centro Hispano, me gustaría estar aquí acompañando siempre a mi hija, a mis nietos. Me siento muy feliz, me siento muy agradable. The evening was a new seat for Centro Hispano. For the executive director, Menendez Coller, Hispanic and Latinx people will have a central role in the future of Wisconsin. Es una manera diferente de vernos, because people here in Madison see us a certain way. Y somos más de festivales y, y no sé, las cosas tradicionales que tienen acá. Y Spanish Heritage Month, somos más de eso, somos el futuro de este estado. Reporting for WORT, I'm Diego Alegría. It's now 6.27 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The debate over the future of Social Security continues in Washington. But elsewhere in the country, senior organizations say those who rely on the program, or will in the future, should be able to share their thoughts, too. A public engagement initiative in Wisconsin is providing that platform. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Keeping Social Security afloat without enacting cuts remains a thorny topic in Congress. As those debates continue to unfold, Wisconsin residents have a chance to express their views about this safety net, including an event this week. AARP has been holding informal gatherings around Wisconsin, providing details about the long-standing program, the latest developments about its future, and how residents would like to see it handled. Martin Hernandez with AARP Wisconsin says these sessions are meant to provide a relaxed atmosphere that allows participants to discuss a hot-button issue without the political tension often connected to it. There's so much rhetoric going from both sides, and we really want to just present the facts. He says they're especially trying to engage with workers in their 40s and 50s who will eventually rely on the program. Social Security is popular with voters, but lawmakers are divided on how to maintain it amid forecasts that its funds will run out in a decade. Some Republicans have been criticized for floating potential cuts amid their calls for tighter spending. The listening session tour will visit the Brewing Project in Eau Claire tomorrow evening from 5 to 7.
Similar events will be held in Appleton and Madison later this month. So far, Hernandez says a common topic has been who is paying into Social Security and how it's often described as an earned benefit for most workers made possible by deductions from their paychecks. So it's not just this obscure pot of money that's that's hanging out there. It's, it's their money that they've been paying into. AARP says more than one in five Wisconsin residents receive Social Security benefits. The program also keeps 264,000 state residents, 65 and older, out of poverty. While there's been controversy over the rhetoric surrounding proposed cuts, there have also been efforts to find solutions through bipartisan commissions. Democrats want to raise taxes on the wealthy to help boost the program, an idea Republicans oppose. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Madison 365 published a story early this morning discussing proposed rate increases from Alliant Energy and MG&E. Local advocacy groups have formed a coalition opposing this move, saying that energy companies should do more to accommodate low-income communities of color that already struggle to afford their monthly bills. This afternoon, WORT news producer Faye Parks spoke with Reverend David Hart, president of Blacks for Political and Social Action of Dane County, to get his perspective. Thank you for joining me, Reverend. Indeed. What kind of work generally does your group do in the community? When things of social or political or economic nature affect or impact communities of color, then we either take a lead role or a sole role or work to build a coalition to help address those issues. So this interview is specifically concerning some of the proposed rate hikes coming from local energy companies. Can you outline the kind of rate hikes that these companies are proposing? The number is fluctuating even now, but what I know is MG&E, by its testimony, and Alliant, I believe, by its filings and testimonies, are saying that their benchmark for energy burden is about 6% in a household. And in a perfect world, that would be be great. And I'm sure that that exists for some neighborhoods, some communities, but particularly burdened low-income communities and many communities of color, that's not the case. I think there are studies that indicate that a vast majority of low-income communities and communities of color are paying up to four times as much of that 6% benchmark that they use in the calculus of uh, assessing how much energy should cost. So just to clarify, when you're explaining the 6% versus 19%, is that referring to the household income? Yeah, the 6% is a number that uh, I believe MG&E uses as a benchmark. They say that a household should spend about 6% of its household income on energy. And again, that would be in a perfect world, that'd be great. But we are finding, the study suggests, that low-income communities, low-income families and households are spending much more than that. They're spending up to four times that for energy. 
Okay, I understand. So what you're saying is this is already a very high burden of cost for these communities before rate hikes would happen. And then if these hikes did happen in 2024 and 2025, the impact would be even greater. Would you walk me through the practical effects on people's budgets, on their lives, when it comes to paying that much for energy bills? Indeed. We have uh, spent several months talking with churches, with community organizations, with households about what it feels like to be them and pay their energy bills as it sits now. We have churches that have had their electricity or gas cut off, and they provide a pantry for the community, and this has had a very onerous impact, a devastating impact on the community. We've heard from individuals who are unable to pay their energy bills, and they're on ventilators. You know, their their medication needs to be cooled. We've certainly heard from communities that and individuals that have, you know, they have to decide or make choices between paying energy or paying rent or paying for food. And so just, again, as, as things sit, uh, from our perspective, as things sit, it's very difficult. Any increase at all is going to be devastating to all of the communities that we've just discussed. We know that energy is one of the four uh, largest bills that people of color and uh, communities that are in, uh, situated in uh, low-income neighborhoods have to pay. It, it costs to be poor. It costs more to shop for fresh vegetables. It, it costs more to shop for insurance, for housing, for, for rental places. We know that uh, 76% of low-income communities rent rather than uh, buy their homes. So it costs more to be poor and low-income, but, but also you know, individuals with household incomes of 35000 or so, <clears throat> they're just simply not able to uh, not able to afford, as it is now, their, the ability to pay for their energy bills. Um, this rate hike will be devastating to them. We believe that there are any number of ways to address this without creating um, and passing on uh, more costs to the consumer. I think, uh, you know, certainly the Public Service Commission can ask for Alliant and MG&E to look at renewable sources, just look at some, some other alternatives instead of passing along these rate hikes to the consumer. Okay, so you mentioned renewable energy. Do you have any other proposals or ideas of what local energy companies could do to accommodate lower income communities to help them afford these bills? Yes. Absolutely. I think there could be a, a cap on the amount of energy expenses that individuals have to pay. So if you are moderate to low income, you can certainly, MG&E and Alliant could, could certainly cap the expenses at, at a particular level. We believe that in addition to looking at renewable sources, we believe that they can develop some programs that would help and assist low and moderate income individuals to, to pay for, for these. They can have an energy forgiveness program, um, monetary forgiveness program. There are any number of things that they could do. And, you know, I did speak with your colleague, Kirby Mack, earlier today on the phone, and she mm-hmm. mentioned that she's attending a hearing. Is that related to these proposed rate increases? Yes, it is. There was uh, testimony taken last week at 1 and 6 on, I believe that was Wednesday, uh, 
And then uh, today there is a testimony taken at 1 and 6 o'clock as well. What organization or department is holding these hearings? The Wisconsin Public Service Commission. Now I'm wondering as well, if the energy companies were to move forward with these rate increases, what are their next steps for implementing that increase? What is the approval process? Well, the PSC would approve the rate hike and then it would go into effect next year. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this and uh, we just continue to urge uh, the PSC and to um, vote against this rate hike and work with both of the utility companies to come up with solutions to not pass the energy burden and the the monetary burden on to consumers who are low income and moderate income. Thank you again for speaking with me, Reverend. Take care now. That was Reverend David Hart, president of Blacks for Political and Social Action of Dane County. They're part of a coalition that opposes potential rate increases from area energy companies, saying the move would disproportionately impact low-income communities of color. Dr. Anthony Lizarowitz discusses the effects of climate change in this edition of Yale's Climate Connections. A Harvard researcher says that heat waves, droughts, and floods will push vulnerable people into more extreme poverty. They won't be able to migrate to escape these disasters. For many folks living in flood-prone areas of Lagos, Nigeria, uh, climate migration may just mean moving across the city. They'd prefer to stay near friends, family, and jobs. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Climate change will cause more intense droughts, extreme flooding, and crippling heat waves in many parts of the world. In response, some people may become climate refugees. But Aylan Benvenist of Harvard University found that as conditions become more extreme, it will get harder for many of the world's poorest and most vulnerable people to move, so some will be unable to escape. It's costly to move, particularly if you're going to move further away, and especially if you're going to move across borders. Climate change-driven heat waves, droughts, and floods can damage crops and destroy houses, pushing low-income people even further into poverty. Extreme weather could also make it more difficult for just one or two family members to move away and send money back home. What that means is kind of a double whammy. You have climate change impacts in origin communities in those locations, but you also have limited options of having access to credit that is being sent back to origin communities because migrants are not being able to leave in the first place. So Ben Venice says that as much as the world is focused on climate refugees, we also need to pay attention to people who cannot afford to escape climate disasters at all. In the huge coastal city of Lagos, Nigeria, rising seas and more extreme storms put millions of people at risk of flooding. And so I was expecting that people would want to move, especially when I was talking to young people. That's Susan Aiko of the German Institute of Development and Sustainability. While a graduate student at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry, she surveyed about 350 Lagos residents. She asked about their experiences with flooding and if they consider moving in response to the threat. More than two-thirds said that they're willing to relocate. But most of those who said that they'd consider moving did not want to leave Lagos. Many have family, friends, and jobs there. 
over half of the people who I surveyed, they expressed intentions to relocate within the city. Eko says there are lots of news stories about how climate change will increase migration to the U.S. and Europe. But her research indicates that many people, if given a choice, would prefer to move to safer areas nearby. So she says it's important for cities to work to prevent flooding and to support people who need to move but want to stay close to home. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, no water spouts around here today, but uh, yesterday's evening thunderstorms might have taken some of you by surprise. I have to admit, I was surprised to hear as much thunder as I did yesterday. I did mention on the Monday morning forecast that we'd likely see uh, showers popping up late yesterday, given the strength of the upper impulse that was traveling down and around the upper trough that was overhead. But the cells were definitely more vigorous than I was expecting, especially since the sun was going down at that point and the storms were partly being driven by surface heating. Radar analysis showed the storm tops were up at about uh, 20,000 feet, which was consistent also with model sounding data yesterday. The soundings did also indicate, though, a freeze level up at about 8,000 feet, so uh, that left a good 10,000 feet or more of glaciated vertical distance for uh, lightning generation, thus the uh, thunder we heard. The moisture left behind by the storm uh, storms about... Uh, Two-tenths of an inch here in uh, the city of Madison helped uh, low clouds and fog to develop around uh, here during the overnight hours last night. And, of course, those hung on uh, this morning to keep us socked in. We gradually mixed our ceilings upward and broke out the blue skies during the uh, midday hours, but with light winds under the center of the surface high-pressure cell and similar uh, low-level moisture profiles going through this coming overnight, we may see some fog or low clouds set up once again. But we'll be seeing our winds veering more uh, southerly as we enter the day tomorrow, and that may aid in uh, faster mixing out of any low cloud cover that does develop. And that will start us on the end of the week warm-up that I was previewing on the Monday morning forecast, taking us towards 70 tomorrow after today's October 65 degree high temperature, possibly into the mid-70s on Friday. Uh, there has been something of a shift in the slightly longer range prognosis, though, since the Monday forecast, and that's reflected in the water vapor image of the continent that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. The three-day loop there shows you, among uh, well, among other things, that strong burst of upper winds diving down and around the upper trough over us yesterday and popping up the line of thunderstorms that pass through here. But further out to the west and north, you can see a low-pressure circulation uh, swirling uh, southeastward across northern Alberta. That approaching feature, rather than passing on a more northeastward trajectory as Monday's maps had it, is going to cleave off just a limited chunk of the warm air dome that's out over the west coast and bring it in here rather than allowing the more extended warm-up of the uh, full ridge to approach us from the west. So we're likely to see a distinct cold frontal passage occurring late Friday or early Saturday, which may then uh, linger in the vicinity of the front, uh, nearby us to the south and east on Saturday, inducing cloud cover and possible showers. Temperatures won't cool drastically behind the front, but between uh, modest cold air advection and 
cloud cover on the day Saturday. High temperatures are likely to struggle to get uh, past 70 both of the weekend days. We will warm with another brief round of upper ridging as we get into the first few days of next week with another cool off then following after Wednesday. Uh, but looking further out for a moment, uh, indications are that we'll remain generally at or above normal temperature-wise as we get out through these next couple of weeks. Of course, uh, this time of year, we always start to worry about frost, which becomes a concern as we start to approach the autumnal equinox. Incidentally, if you've uh, got the water vapor up in front of you, you might once again check in on Hurricane Lee. It's still grinding slowly eastward across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, slightly diminished in strength from cooler waters underneath it, but still a Category 2 storm at this time and expected to turn northward inside of Bermuda and eventually make landfall uh, late Friday up in the vicinity around the Bay of Fundy, so that still may be something of a problem up there. But back to more uh, immediate concerns tonight. Skies will continue to clear uh, over the coming hours with the temperatures dropping to the mid or upper 40s by dawn on light northerly winds, which will decouple to near calm during the overnight. Fog is likely to develop in the river valleys and uh, perhaps more thinly in some of the other areas, possibly just some low uh, low clouds otherwise as we get on towards dawn. Tomorrow, any uh, fog or low clouds should mix out fairly quickly, leaving generally clear skies for the rest of the day. Temperatures will respond to uh, 70 or so on uh, increasing south to southeasterly winds, coming up to 4 to 8 miles per hour. Temperatures will drop to the low 50s overnight on uh, light southerly winds, with a uh, little more than uh, passing high clouds otherwise. And Friday should begin mostly clear with clouds uh, increasing through the day, especially in the afternoon as the cold front starts to approach from the northwest. Temperatures will reach the low to mid-70s, uh, possibly a little warmer than that in spots that might stay a little bit clearer longer into the day to the southeast of Madison. Temperatures will hold in the upper 50s through the overnight, with showers becoming increasingly likely towards Saturday morning. I think those will be widely scattered. And Saturday should see a good bit of passing cloud cover with, again, some perhaps some spotty showers popping up uh, well after occurring early in the day, redeveloping in the afternoon. Uh, I'm not expecting anything quite so enthusiastic as yesterday out of those. High temperatures will reach uh, 70 or perhaps the low 70s on veering southwest to west winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. And will stay partly cloudy overnight with a low temperature in the low to mid 50s. And Sunday should be sunnier, but northerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour will keep us uh, in the 70-degree range that day. It's currently 61 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 47. Winds are out of the north at 7 miles per hour. Uh, generally clear over the station, just a few cumulus left up at about 4,000 feet. And the barometer's at 30.11 inches of mercury and holding steady over the past few hours. We go now to September 1965, when State Street merchants complained about too many beer bars. Madison Television entered a new age, and a famous alumnus returned to campus. Stu Levitan has those headlines and more on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, September 1965 The month opens with a new effort at collective action by State Street merchants who organize to fight beer-based bad behavior. 
they form the Campus Area Improvement Association to oppose any new beer bars west of Gorham Street. There are already seven such bars on State Street between Gilman and Murray Streets, and a total of 14 within easy walking distance of State Street. Catering to the 18 to 21 crowd, and thus attracting teens from towns with a higher drinking age, the bars also require lots of law enforcement resources. Weekend nights, four officers walk a beat in just the 500 to 700 blocks. Football weekends, the force is doubled. Furrier Stanley Hirschleader, the association's president, has had enough. We're completely fed up with drunkenness, the rowdiness, the broken glass, and the drag racing, he says, and it has got to the point where it is not safe for persons to walk on some of the side streets. Within a week, membership is up to 350 and growing. City officials take notice and adopt an ordinance forbidding minors from possessing open containers of beer when not accompanied by parents. The city council also unanimously rejects applications for liquor licenses from three restaurants, even though none is a beer bar. And to make sure there's no confusion about what the council does in the future, it contracts with WMFM-FM to provide tape recordings of its council broadcasts at a cost of $1.75 per hour. The tapes will be retained for a month before being reused. A new age in Madison media dawns as the Common Council awards a franchise for Community Antenna Television Service, also known as Cable TV, to a new company called Complete Channel TV. The new system, which could provide up to a dozen channels to subscribers, should start operations in early 1968. Complete Channel will pay a license fee of $300, plus 1% of gross revenue each year from 1967 through 71. And the city's current TV system livens up as WKOW-TV Channel 27 starts broadcasting the Late Show movie series on Friday and Saturday nights in living color. The ABC affiliate, where co-owner Tony Moe is the general manager, will also broadcast a color test pattern each morning so viewers can set their color receivers correctly. There's national fraternity news on campus as Alpha Delta Phi holds its 133rd convention. Among the brothers returning is two-time Academy Award-winning actor Frederick March, known as Fred Bickle when he was president of the UW class of 1920. The Racine native did drama, was manager of the football team, ran track, and was a member of several honorary societies, including the interfraternity Ku Klux Klan. Last year, March gave the keynote address for the NAACP's 10th anniversary celebration of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. In 1963, he was part of a planning group for Dr. Martin Luther King prior to his trip to Alabama and that sojourn in a Birmingham jail. In 1936, March co-founded the Hollywood Anti-Nazi Alliance and for many years after was accused of being a communist. March returns to a thriving fraternity scene as the 32 fraternities pledge 507 new members, a record 23% increase over 1964. Total fraternity membership is projected at about 2,260, more than 10% above the 1963 membership. March and his brothers find a campus where more buildings are blooming. The $4.5 million 12-story Twin Towers of Og Hall, the last of the three high-rise dormitories, opens in the 700 block of West Dayton Street. Home to 960 male undergraduate, it comes with a tunnel, 
connecting it to the also newly opened Gordon Commons, with its six large dining rooms and kitchen facilities to feed 3,000. The dorm is named after Frederick Austin Ogg, veteran member and chair of the political science department in the first half of the century. On September 8th, the 57th anniversary of Central High School's first day, the school is warned by staff that it's approaching its last day and will likely soon close due to declining enrollment, which is just fine with vocational school director Norman Mitby. He wants the building for MATC, which is already crowded with many more students on the way. At West High School, the issue is student conduct, which Principal Douglas Ritchie thinks needs to be changed. He bans smoking, enforces a strict dress and behavior code, orders several boys to get haircuts, and ends the open lunch period. On the Near East Side, a possible sign of improved race relations. Lapham School Principal Carl Liebig tells a team of consultants looking into the local human relations situation that there was great unease when a black family moved into the neighborhood six years ago, but that the black parents are today co-presidents of the PTA. Still, Madison has barely a handful of blacks among its 1,500 teachers. Superintendent Robert Gilberts tells the consultants he's trying to hire more, but they are in such high demand, and Madison's pay is so low that recruitment is difficult. The board also votes to have school children bring home a sealed envelope containing a list of fallout shelters. The shelters in the public schools can accommodate only 14,129, less than half the total enrollment. And City Civil Defense Director Richard Wilson thinks parents need to know what other protection is available. Local labor has lots to celebrate as it marks its day on the 3rd. Of the 113,100 jobs-seeking adults in the Madison-Dane County market, there are only 1,800 unemployed, a rate of 1.6%, far below the national rate of 4.4%. And the extended Madison community suffers its first Vietnam casualty on September 27th, when Army Captain Humbert Rocky Versace, 28, is executed by the Viet Cong in reprisal for South Vietnam's execution of three communist sympathizers. An airborne Special Forces intelligence officer, Versace was captured in October 1963. He was the son of a career military man stationed at Truax in the late 50s and living at 5110 Flambeau Road while Versace was at West Point. Versace was going to study for the priesthood with the Mary Knoll Fathers when his army commitment was over, so his family asks St. Paul's University Catholic Chapel to offer the Mass of St. Martin for him. The service is sparsely attended and draws no anti-war protesters. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it for us. Thanks for listening this evening. Your headline writer was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Diego Alegria. Uh, special thanks also to Wisconsin News Connections Mike Mullen and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Faye Parks produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.